Hi, everyone. You're listening to Peaches Aren't the Only Fruit podcast, a fan podcast about the Amazon Prime series, A League of Their Own. I'm Emma. I'm here with my co-host, Karen. She's going to start by giving you a two-minute summary of episode three, which we'll be discussing today. So Karen, take it away. I'm literally timing myself because this one's going to be really hard to get in under two minutes. We start with Carson. She's dreaming. It's a wet dream. It is a Gretzen wet dream, but also it's a threesome because Charlie's there. We then have Greta and Carson having the talk. What is friendship? We're going to talk about this later. Then we have Max. She's at the revival. Two back to the peaches. They're getting paid. Moving into going to practice. We see Dove, horrible coach, not invested in the development of his players. He's just there to talk to press, get his name out there and tell old war stories. Go back to Max. She's joined Rockford Tool and Screw because she is going to get on that baseball team. Back to the revival. Clance, oh my God, is she pregnant? We then have Max back at the factory. She has gotten herself paired with Mr. Fox because unlike last episode where she was just a bull in a china shop, this time she is going to be more strategic and she is going to charm the socks off people in her ambitions to play on the baseball team. Back to the peaches. They're discussing Dove and how are they actually going to practice and get better if he's not going to be the one that's training them. They decide to do night practices. We have this other amazing Gretzen scene, stargazing. It's fantastic. The Peaches play again. They finally win. Now, we then have Carson, Greta in the kitchen. Another Gretzen scene. We're going to talk about it. We love it. Max gets switched to Days. This is a problem. Now she's got conflict with her mom, this double life she's leading. Meanwhile, Max's dad and Clance's husband discuss the responsibility of parenthood. Clance's husband is given an egg to take care of. Tony is in on the joke. It's a hilarious moment. Then we have Max going to the hair salon. Development's there. We're going to talk about that later. Greta goes on a date. Oh my God, I can't even talk about it here. Esti, Lupe, oh my God, I'm over time. <laughs> oh my okay, that was close. You almost made it. Was so close. Thankfully, we have the rest of the episode to discuss what we thought. I want to start by talking about our gut reactions. To me, this was one of the funniest episodes of the show. It also really moved the plot along for major characters and storylines. One of my favorite episodes overall so far, I didn't feel like there were a lot of weak or low points or sort of slow points in the episode. And yeah, I just thought there were so many great one-liners. And when I rewatched it, I laughed even more than the first time. So what about you? You read my mind. I had the exact same reaction. This could be my favorite episode. And I'm afraid to say that because later episodes, I'm going to say that to you. They're all my favorite <laughs> episode. But I really loved this episode because it advanced so many different themes. It's so amazing when you have a scene that might only last 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes, and you learn so much from it. And I feel like every scene here was carefully crafted to teach us something, to advance the narrative. And like you said, there's so many jokes. But really, this is like the best Gretzen episode. You really can't get better than this because we have the full spectrum of everything that happens. And I just love it for that reason. And I just think it's so, so well done. Yeah, so we're going to start today in terms of some of the high points discussing Gretzen absolutely needed. We're also going to discuss more about Max and Tony and that mother-daughter relationship. We're also going to do a little history segment about makeup of the 1940s and Greta's style, and then also talk about Lupe and understanding roles on a sports team. So Karen, why don't you start by digging into the Gretzen storyline that was huge in this episode? 
You know what? There's so much to talk about that I think we really need to break it down scene by scene. So we start off, like I was saying, we have Carson's wet dream, right? One of the things about this is there's been this conversation on social media, is Carson bisexual or is she lesbian? And you know what? I think everyone is free to have their own ideas. I'm not trying to burst anyone's bubble. For me, watching this scene, I thought this was the canonization of her bisexuality. Because it's not like Charlie shows up and she gives him the Heisman, shoves Mm -hmm, him away, and takes Greta on instead. It's both of them. She is aroused by both of them. So for me, I thought this was an effort on the part of the writers to show, you know what? She does like Charlie sexually, but she likes Greta too. The idea of female desire of sensuality and sexuality, I think is really powerful because one of the things, if you are someone who's struggling with your sexuality, and I think many of us can relate, what is that line between friendship or maybe something a little more, there eventually comes the question of, could I have sex with this person? Am I actually sexually attracted to this person? And this dream shows us, and it shows Carson, the answer is yes. She doesn't just want to hold Greta's hand or make out with her in a storeroom. She wants to have sex with her. Yeah, I think so too. I've read some of the online commentary, and I know that some people feel like Carson is realizing that she's not into Charlie. But I read it the way that you did about ambiguity, that she has a connection with Charlie. Like you said, when he shows up in her dream, they start kissing and then Greta shows up. I felt it was showing that internal struggle between what's her sexual desires and how is she feeling, recognizing that she has this sexual interest in Greta but that she's not totally forgotten about Charlie and that there is probably at least something there. But we're going to learn about that in future episodes of the show. But I agree. I thought that it was showing and establishing that Carson is at least somewhat inclined toward men and women in relationships, which makes it a more complicated storyline than just having it be black and white. And as we know, many times people are not black and white in their romantic feelings. I have to say, though, I thought one of the funniest things right out of the gate was how Shirley wakes up Carson from the dream and says you were having a night terror. That line just cracked me up, that whole interaction. I think we can imagine what Carson was doing to indicate that. Yes, we only, (laughs) they didn't show us, but uh, yeah, obviously Shirley figured out that something was going on. So what other scenes related to Gretzen did you really like in this episode? So. Carson has this dream in which she understands that she is sexually interested in Greta, as you said. But the very next thing she does is tries to push that away. She gets in front of Greta and says, I just want to be friends. I absolutely love the line between the two of them where Carson says, maybe we could try to be friends. And Greta says, friends can mean a lot of different things. And Carson rolls her eyes up toward the ceiling. He's like, so many things. And I love that because it's not true, is it? (laughs) I mean, friends can mean a lot of things. They can. It can. We're friends and we're podcasters. But I just have a feeling that that's not what Carson and Greta were talking about. Because again, this is Carson's unwillingness to be confrontational and unwillingness to be like, but they can't. I just love that as just a funny moment. I love this setup, of course, because they're on the team, that they're going to have to see each other no matter what happens. That's, I think, one of my favorite types of tropes and a good use of it of like, whether they're friends, whether they're more than friends, they're going to be working together for the next however many games are left. Yeah. The scene in which the peaches are hanging out 
and Carson gets a drink spilled on her, spills her drink, right? And they go into the kitchen and Greta's helping her. I also love this scene because I think there's a lot of realism to it. Greta has just been told that she should back off, but she doesn't because she feels that chemistry. And Carson doesn't know how to handle that. It's like, there's all these emotions here. And she pushes her away. She physically pushes her away and says, I'm not like you. I'm normal. It's a very painful moment. It's painful for Greta, of course, who's also shocked that she's just been shoved. But I think for anyone who has struggled with their sexual orientation, there is this idea of what is normal and what is not normal. And society does not consider this behavior to be normal, certainly in the 1940s. So struggling with that and the effort to cling to what's perceived as normalness, I just feel like that scene is so relatable in that sense and that phrase. And it's something that comes up later. And so I'm glad they had that. Again, this is an example. I think that whole scene probably start to finish is like maybe 45 seconds. But it's Mm -hmm. so powerful in how much we learn about Carson in that moment and in that inner struggle. Something about that scene, I really liked it too, was that it felt a little strange in what we see in the rest of the show because it's one of the few times that we see internalized homophobia acknowledged. The show does a lot to talk about some issues of the day, certainly to address racial issues to explore different sexualities and genders, especially related to queer women. So I thought it was good that they included this. Something that we discussed was it's great that the show focuses so much on queer joy rather than queer tragedy, because we've all seen those sorts of sad love stories focus on the bad things. But it just was a little weird to me that everybody else seems to be living practically openly as a queer person in the 1940s. And that this is one of the few times that Carson says, oh, wait, but that's not normal from her point of view. And from what we can imagine about Carson, I mean, we know she's not from a farm, but she probably in her small town in Idaho hasn't interacted with many queer people. She maybe has never met anyone who's openly gay or anything other than cis, het, married, etc. Emma, she has not yet figured out that Joe and Lupe and Jess are all queer. As far as she knows, <laughs> Greta is the only queer person on this team. And I'm not even joking because we find yeah, out later. But that's like, true. Yeah. So I want to go to the date scene because I'm betting this is a lot of people's favorite scene. It honestly is one of my favorite scenes. It's so well done. One of the things I want to bring up here is Darcy Carden as the casting choice of Greta is a really interesting choice for fans. Of course, we know that Abby and Darcy have been friends for a decade and a half and all of that. But I can't remember if Darcy herself said it or who said it, but it was this idea of one does not think of Darcy as the traditional love interest. She's on the comedy shows. She plays a robot or whatever, Uh right? She's not the pinup. Yeah, she's from The Good Place. She hasn't been in roles before where she's a traditional model, glamour, and the aesthetic that we currently ascribe to those things. Yeah, but this show, we absolutely buy it. When Greta is on her date, we look at Greta and she is gorgeous and she is flirtatious and we absolutely are there with Carson. Here is this vivacious, beautiful person who is sticking the knife in and twisting and it hurts. It hurts to watch her flirt with the pet hamster doctor because of Carson's feelings. The chemistry that exists between Abby and Darcy naturally really comes to the fore in this scene when they make that eye contact. And I think Abby does a fantastic, fantastic job here of being so uncomfortable. We really are in that scene with her and we're feeling it with her. 
And when she runs off to the bathroom and is upset, we understand that. I love when she says, you know, you want me to admit that I have feelings for you? Fine, I do. I love that. I could watch that over and over again. And I think it's one of those things where the acting is done very well. You see Greta just gushing over this guy, kind of falling all over him, but in the way that we would expect her to do. And I think it gives insight into her and probably the way that she's maintained her cover for so long in mainstream society that she knows how to play the game. But I think it's great on Carson's part that the acting is not, it's contempt and it's uncomfortable, but you can tell that there is still that romantic tension. There's still that affection there. But when you are into somebody and they're doing something that really hurts you, I think for most of us, we can't imagine being on that sort of date setup. I agree. I thought it was one of the funniest parts of the episode. Also one of the most meaningful parts of the episode. And I also liked Shirley there as some additional comedic relief. And I thought that the female characters really got to shine. The guy was funny, but you don't think too much about him. And we skipped over the stargazing scene when they're at night practice. But I want to I want to talk about this final scene because I love Gretzen. Absolutely love Gretzen. And I love that they have this kiss scene. But it's kind of problematic for me. Carson gets a call from Charlie, who is now literally on his way back to the United States. He's in a way station point in Ireland. He calls and he's talking to her about all the ways that their relationship is going to be better and they're going to do all of these things and it's going to be great and they're going to live their lives. And Carson is like, yep, it's going to be great. And she hangs up and she promptly goes and finds Greta and makes out with her. As a Gretzen fan, I love that Carson is deciding to take the bull by the horns and do this thing that she wants to do. But as a married woman, as someone who's been with Charlie for we know at least six or seven years, it's kind of awkward. Oh, I would say married for that time. But, you know, later we find out they've been together a really long time. I think even here we can infer that they're childhood sweethearts, that they have this long time connection. So, yeah, I just wanted to say it's not just some guy who she married on a whim yesterday. Yeah, it's just kind of weird that instead of feeling guilt and instead of feeling like she needs to find some way to create distance between these two halves of her, She's like, talk to my husband, time to go make out with this lady. So for me, that part was just a little bit awkward. And I know later we'll talk about your feelings about Charlie and all this situation. But just for me, that was kind of like a, I wish they'd written that a little bit differently. If someone was going to inspire Carson, try something new and be brave. I just wish it hadn't been Charlie. Yeah, I can see some readings that this is the indication that Carson is into Greta. She's not into Charlie. Some people read it that it's sort of solidifying that Carson is gay and that she's realizing she doesn't want this future with Charlie and she is shifting all the way to Greta. But I too felt it was a little weird because again, knowing that she's been with Charlie for so long and that there is some kind of affection there established even in the first scene of this episode, she seems to really care about Charlie. It did feel a little weird to me that she would suddenly speak to him and then very quickly go off to find Greta and pivot because you'd think at least maybe she'd feel a little bad or sad or conflicted. Yeah, she's never really conflicted about Charlie, is she? All of her conflict is about how she fits into society. It's not really about her relationship with Charlie. 
maybe one could argue a lot later, but even then, it's more about her role as a woman and as a wife, but Charlie's kind of a non-entity within that. Yeah, and that's where I'm not sure, and it's something we're going to see later in the series, I'm not sure if Carson is intended to be gay, if she's intended to be bisexual, somewhere on the spectrum, because as you mentioned, it doesn't seem to be an issue with Carson and Charlie. It seems to be an issue of Carson figuring out herself, which, I mean, certainly that's a great thing to do. And I think this episode really showed Carson coming into her own and discovering who she is as a person and shifting from the timid, sheltered Carson that we saw in episode one into someone who's a leader. Emma, tell me about Max and Tony, because that's, you know, that's a major theme of this too. Yeah, so Max and Tony, I thought this was such a great storyline. Max has gotten the job at the factory, and she's sneaking out at night to work there. She is the first woman working on the line, but she's doing this so that she can get onto the baseball team. Meanwhile, during the day, she's continuing to work at Tony's salon, and she's tired, but she's putting in the work, and Tony surprises her by walking over to the salon and seeing that Tony has just purchased an expensive new sign that's advertising both of their names for Chapman's salon. They have this moment where Max is, I think, really torn. I think she appreciates all her mom has done for her, but she also knows that this isn't her dream. And it's kind of heartbreaking. And something I want to discuss with you is, do you think that Tony's being pragmatic or do you think she's being controlling? I think how you interpret Tony's behavior kind of depends on how old you are. The reason I say that is, Emma, you and I, we are not spring chickens. We're not old. My jokes about tar pit (laughs) aside. If I was younger, if I was in my teens or even in my 20s, I absolutely, of course, would have seen Tony as this wet blanket. Why isn't she supporting Max's dreams? How dare she? And that is what, in some ways, Max feels. She doesn't have the full picture. She has a dream. And what she sees is that Tony had a dream and Tony got to follow her dream. Tony wanted to be a hairdresser. She's a hairdresser. She wanted a family. She has a family. Max wants the same opportunity to pursue her dreams. But now that I'm older, I see a lot more of Tony's perspective. It's kind of the argument that families have when a child wants to do some non-traditional career. They want to be an artist or a dancer, any of those careers that don't necessarily have a stable income. For older people, the concern is, can you establish economic stability? Because everything is based on economic stability. So for Tony, it's like, Max, how are you going to be stable? How are you going to build a life? How are you going to have a family? All these things that Tony thinks Max will eventually want. Yeah, and especially knowing that they are at such a disadvantage in society, as we know that Tony was only able to get this loan because she thinks the bank thought that she was a man. And as we discussed previous episode, knowing that at this time there would have been disparities in pay between black and white people, there would have been redlining and barriers to entry for black Americans. Tony already knows that they're facing an uphill climb and she wants to help clear the pathway for Max so that it's not as hard. She does. And for that, we have to give Tony props. She's seen how hard it is out in the world and she is trying to give Max a leg up. Look, your name is on this business. You are doing so much better than basically any other Black woman right now. I'm going to help you be successful. I'm going to start you on that path of success. The question is, What is the proper response? How long does she give Max to pursue this dream? 
Is it two years? Is it four years? Is it forever? Is it never. And that's something that the two of them are working out. Unfortunately, they can't have that direct conversation about it. Something else, we don't actually know how old Max is, do we? Because sometimes she seems a little older and sometimes she behaves much more immaturely. Yeah, that's something in general about the show where a lot of the actors, the peaches seem to be in their 30s, but the characters at times seem to be portrayed as if they're younger. For example, Carson makes a comment about wanting to buy a house with Charlie. I'd be surprised if she was in her 30s at this time living in a small town and didn't own a home. You know, it's not like nowadays. She's not renting an apartment in a big city high rise. So yeah, I'm a little unclear on the age that they're supposed to be. You know what? I would love it if season two was just AU. And it was actually the same story told again, but it's <laughs> AU set in modern times. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would love to see these characters in a modern type of setting. And this would go back to my original theory that this is some sort of broad city fantasy remembering of the past. Absolutely. So what do you think? Does this mean we forgive Tony? I think at this point, we need to wait and see when Max speaks to Tony about what Max's dream really is. I really do feel for Tony and I'm with you. I think when I was younger, I would have been more like, how can your parent try to push you into a box? But now that we're in our 30s and I have very young children, I can understand wanting to make the path more clear for them. My kids won't face the barriers that Max and Tony do by far, but I worry about them. Even though they're young, I worry about them experiencing anti-Semitism. I worry about them experiencing racism because they're biracial Asians. A friend's kid's school was recently vandalized with swastikas. We see things in the news about anti-Semitism, about Asian hate when the pandemic began. Can we talk about how scary this is? That it is 2022 and people are painting swastikas? Are you kidding me? Yeah. And that, I'm sure, again, thinking back to when the show is set, they mentioned Jim Crow. And I'm sure that it's not just being held back economically, but there are times when there are real risks and real danger. And I can understand Tony being probably afraid that Max could get into a situation where she's harmed. Thriving is one thing, but honestly, just safety is another because it is something we even still worry about in today's times, which is horrible to say. So yeah, I think we need to see when Max comes forward to Tony and says, you know, this isn't my dream right now. But I just love Max's parents, Tony and Edgar. They have such a fun rapport. The way that they're laughing when Edgar gives Clance's husband the egg and he, you know, he's so nervous and he's giving advice. That was just such a heartfelt moment. They're a great family. It's one of those moments of levity that the show has that I think is so wonderful. The egg, it's a joke, but it's also true. But it's hilarious. Like how many eggs has Edgar given people? Because Tony, this is not the first time she's seen some young man scuttle off with an egg held protectively in his hands. And we get that sense, right? She literally says like one sentence and we understand as the viewers that this is not the first time. Yeah. And even though they're not the focus of the show, I think it's great to see that there is this supporting, loving family behind characters. Again, going to the fact that we've all seen the shows where, unfortunately, that's not the case, where queer characters, they get kicked out, where really bad things happen to them. They come up in a not great family. 
we don't know the backstory of a lot of the peaches. We do know that Carson's mom left, which is discussed in this episode. But it made me feel really good. It's something I really enjoy about the show of watching Max with her very loving parents who are trying to do the best. And I respect that. Yeah, for sure. So Emma, I want to pivot because I want to talk makeup. Also, again, our listeners can't see, but your lipstick looks fabulous. I'm certain this is not to Greta. It is correct. Greta's looks in this episode and throughout the series, but really in this episode, I noticed how beautiful she looked. The drape of her clothes, the delicate prints and patterns. But obviously, one of the biggest things about Greta is her makeup and her look. So I wanted to talk a little bit about typical makeup of the 1930s and 40s. As we always say, this isn't a history podcast. We're not going super deep into everything here, but just giving the high points because I think it's easy for people to forget nowadays that what we see today with the Kardashian, with the Instagram face, it's not what people always historically did. So how much do you know about makeup and looks from the 30s and 40s? Emma, how much do I know about makeups and looks, (laughs) period? You know better than to ask that question. Not super into it, but I mean, you're familiar with the idea of contouring, correct? Okay. I actually understand that people use makeup to highlight visual effects that make it appear as though they have, let's say, sharper cheekbones or stuff like that, right? Yep. So the current styles are the contour where you're applying shading and you're trying to change the shape of how your face looks with lighter and darker powders microblading of your eyebrows, which I barely know what that is. But I think if if you look yeah, on what Instagram- What is that, Emma? What, is someone going to take a razor blade to my eyebrows? I don't understand. If you look on Instagram, you can see how it looks. I've never had it done. And also the fact that right now we'll use so many social media filters. Any of us can take a picture, run it through a filter and look different, have a smaller nose, have bigger lips. I just turned myself into a cartoon. I do love those cartoon apps. You did turn me on to that. That was an improvement on myself. No, you're great. You're great. People loved your Halloween costume on social media. That's because I was dressed like a peach. And also because I was holding my dog, which was probably the real draw. Your dog is amazing. Everybody has to go to our Instagram, P-A-T-O-F podcast. He always has his ear sticking up. Yes, that is a genetic thing. It just sticks up. But shout out to Will Graham, executive producer of A League of Their Own, because he actually liked my photo of myself and my dog. It was so cute. So, okay, getting to typical makeup of the 1930s and 40s. Some of the celebrities that I'm thinking of, movie stars, would be people like Lana Turner, Greta Garbo, Ingrid Bergman, Rita Hayworth. You are seeing a kind of natural look. But the big statement piece is those red lips, which we see Greta have. Generally, women wore matte foundation, rosy cheeks with rouge, which now we call blush. But if you speak to older people, certainly people of that generation, they would call it rouge, put sort of on the apples of the cheeks, a light shadow on the lid of the eye with highlighter on the brow bone, curled eyelashes with dark mascara. And red lips, like a true red type of lip. The hair was typically sort of soft curls, soft waves. I'd encourage people to go look up some of these looks. They still look pretty fresh, I think, to our eyes nowadays. And 
really the beginning of the 1900s was when modern makeup started to come into fashion and when it started to be produced in mass. In this time, the 30s and 40s, some of the brands that were popular were Max Factor, Maybelline, Estee Lauder was created in the 40s. Some of those are things that you still see on the shelves today. And I think that it really had an impact on the trends that we continue to see. But definitely when you look at Greta, she really stands out in the cast of being very made up all the time. Again, not the heavy contour of today, but you can tell that she's put time into doing her makeup and she really takes pride in her appearance. Absolutely. Props to the hair and makeup department for a work of art. Yeah, she looks great. And I actually think it's a little bit surprising at times that some of the other characters are not made up. I guess it's... Mabel's pretty made up. Mabel. I mean, that hair. That hair is like, wow. That looks like that took a while. You know what? Okay. Real story. My story. My grandmother wore her hair like that. She would set it at night with foam rollers and go to sleep with the foam rollers. Did you know somebody did that? Yeah, my grandma did the same thing. And my great-grandmother... Yeah, that was really how people looked. And my grandmother continued to wear that style. And my grandmother continued to wear red lipstick. And actually very similar to the style. Red lipstick. She cut her own hair. She put it in curlers. Matte foundation. Matte what powder. I'm hearing is that Greta actually is your grandmother. <laughs> my grandmother did have a similar type of look. Although Greta's hair is a looser curl. I like that looser curl. Honestly, I do. Yeah, I mean, really, the styling is beautiful. And as we were saying before, even though Darcy is not, obviously, she's not a Kardashian. She doesn't have the look that nowadays is the super. Emma, the Kardashians don't look like the (laughs) Kardashians. Can we be honest about this? There's so much reconstruction of the face. I know. Chloe in particular, when you look at her in the past and you look at her now, it's not even the same person. That is not just contouring. I think it shows how with the styling and the makeup and the charisma that Greta has, you totally believe it and you want to fall in love with her and she looks beautiful. And again, going back to the clothing too, in this episode, she had some really cute outfits where she was showing cleavage like a low cut blouse. She had a jumpsuit with thin straps when she was flirting with Carson that I thought looked really great. And it's something that I think people could still wear today. Emma, can we pause and say, among the Gretzen fans, I think most people probably, they're Greta fans, right? That's who they're into. In this episode, during the game, Carson has her hat backwards. And I'm just like, oh my God, so hot. I'm team Carson. She is so cute with her hat backwards. Team Carson all the way. I think everyone has their own look. Personally, I love Max's look, maybe because her mom works in the salon, but I think Max looks adorable. And when she is putting on her hat and trying to look more masculine and passing as a guy, even though clearly she's not. Clearly she looks nothing like a guy. And I'm pretty sure the pastor's wife was like lying about that. Yeah, but I I thought she looked so cute. I thought she looked so cute in the overalls. And that is something when it was the overalls and her work outfit. That is really true as women were entering factory work because men were being called to fight in World War II. Those kind of looks and styles were things that women were wearing more and often for the first time. Yeah, I think Max. I think she's gorgeous. Emma is team Max. Karen is team Carson. 
it works out. We don't have to fight over who <laughs> gets who in the imaginary world of who dates who. So Emma, let's move on because we've still got so much to discuss. I want to talk about the idea of injuries in sports. And the reason I want to bring this up is because we're introduced to Lupe and what drives Lupe. What is her motivation and why is there conflict on the team? What we come to find is that Lupe is trying so hard to be important on this team and to be important to Dove that even though this pork ball that Dove has come up with is injuring her elbow and is eventually going to take her out of the game, she's still trying it. She's still willing to undermine other people. And the reason I bring it up is, as we've mentioned repeatedly in past episodes, probably too much, I have been on a ton of sports teams, and that is so true to how people play and the pressure that's placed upon them. If you're on a team, there is this pressure, especially if you're a good player, to stay in the game. Even if you're injured, there's this impression that players develop that even hurt, I'm still better than the next. Yeah. What about all the movies and stuff that glorify that kind of conduct? They do, right? And we think of Carrie Strug. Again, you and I are old, so we remember, but women's gymnast, she broke her ankle and she still did the next vault and she's hobbling away. She's crying in pain and everyone's like, what a wonderful moment. It's kind of not because a lot of these athletes have significant and permanent injuries because they're forced to push through them. I want to say, I think it's especially true for women that there's the expectation that if you say anything or you express that you're uncomfortable, oh, well, you're just being a spoil sport. You're just not strong enough to do it. And I think you can really see how Lupe doesn't want to be seen as a vulnerable person. She doesn't. And she also sees this as a source of income that she can send home. And so she's concerned that if she were to be kicked off the team or lose her spot, she would lose that. There's the personal pride element. So when Dove asks her, are you hurt or just tired? I can see that happening in real life. And I can see people making that same decision to conceal the injury because to them, the stakes are too high to tell the truth. Lupe hanging around Dove, even as the other players recognize that he's not helpful, he's not a great guy. For Lupe, he is the key to her future. And for Carson to start undermining him, means she has to become an adversary of Carson and she has to cling even tighter to Dove because maybe this is what keeps her in Dove's good graces and keeps her on the team. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about what we see in this episode between Carson and Lupe and how their roles are changing. I want to jump first to a fan question that we got on Instagram from Erin. Thank you so much. It was about a comment I made in the last episode regarding Dove and the guy who was heckling Greta during the last game. In the episode, he's heckling Greta. After the game, Carson sees the empty stadium. Dove is talking to the owners and saying, I don't really even care about this team. I'm here to put myself on the map. And then he talks to the heckler who comes down and makes a comment about it goes down easier when it's a joke. If you remember that it's a joke, it's ouch. It's a bum. I had thought that Dove was giving the guy money, but I replayed it like five times as if this was some sort of forensics investigation. I think he was just taking a pen upon my rewatch. It made me go back and think more in that episode about Dove and Carson seeing what Dove's real motives are, realizing that he's not there for the team. 
And that he's in some way trying to either coordinate or just plan not to support the team, but to support himself. And I mentioned in the last episode how that really got under my skin because I've had bosses like that. But in this episode, knowing that that was the case, especially on my rewatch, I just found Dove to be so hilarious and pathetic because he's constantly trying to promote himself. When the Peaches win, he's like, I'm a great coach. And it was really low key and subtle, but kind of funny. But this gets into the fact that Carson last episode gets the seed planted that she knows Dove is bad for the team. He doesn't care. And Carson starts to shift again, as we've discussed, from being the meek person that we met at the beginning into someone who's going to become a leader. And this is really the episode where we see her step up and say, we need to practice and we need to do things. And she wants to advocate for Lupe to say, you shouldn't be throwing that if it's hurting your arm. And something I love, so writing character growth can be really difficult. You don't want it to be sudden, but in some ways it can't take too long. There's not that many episodes in the season. You have so many storylines. Carson goes through that growth within one episode. Because when you think about it, there is the pie, the conversation pie that fails, which is hilarity. I thought that was so funny. And then a joke about what's next, conversation muffins. To, you know what, we're going to practice at night. To the end of the episode, her calling Dove out and saying, you don't care about us. And so even within the course of what is probably a, I don't know, 45 minute or hour long episode, we see Carson come into her own. And I think that's really well done from a writing perspective because it's organic, it's natural, and we don't question it. Yeah, I loved seeing that growth. And I loved how it set up the tension between Carson and Lupe in later episodes. They're on the same team, they're playing together. But this is something that you had discussed earlier in our podcast, how often when people get on a team, they don't click right away. There can be tensions. There tend to be clicks. And I think this is the episode where we start to see some of those divisions and the fact that they exist. Yeah, for sure. We understand why Lupe was left out. She was in the garage icing her elbow when everyone went into the field, but they didn't come look for her. You would have thought someone would have been like, hey, where's Lupe? And Lupe feels that and she says that. I've been here at breakfast when you guys weren't there. Did you think I wouldn't notice? And that does hurt. We understand why Lupe would feel that she has to, in essence, get her back up and take an adversarial position. From her perspective, that entire team has rejected her. I thought that was something that rang really true. I've been on teams where one person doesn't quite fit in or where for some reason you're the person who doesn't fit in. And it can be really painful. And like you said, Lupe is very motivated because obviously we see her sending money home. She needs the money. She needs this to help her family. She wants to help herself. And she's putting her eggs in Dove's basket. But as far as we can tell, Carson is the only one who has truly seen how duplicitous Dove is. Even though obviously Greta and Joe also have a sense of the fact that Dove is not there for them. Yeah. So Karen, I was thinking that we could go into our lightning round for the end of the episode. What did you think was the funniest line of this episode? Oh my God. Um, Okay, for me, and I've already said it, but I just love friends can mean many things Carson and Carson just being like so many. I love that one. But this was an episode that had so many funny lines. I also loved, this is kind of, you got to, 
kind of listen. But when Max gets discovered in the screw factory, she starts talking about, I got eight kids to feed. But what she actually says is, I got eight kids. I feed most of them. I love that. I kind of think this was ad-libbed. The peaches are getting their checks, but they're concerned because they have the lowest attendance in the league and they've been losing. And so is this gravy train going to end? And Jess says, when on a sinking ship, the first thing you do is drop ballast. You drop dead weight. And Lupe immediately says, how many sinking boats have you been on? Tell me about each one. Yeah, I thought that was great too. And I thought that was great with setting up the relationship between the two of them. That's the stuff I wanted to see more of too. For me, one of the funniest lines was at dinner on the date, Greta's date, when the guy that she's with talks about his hair, people think it's a toupee. And then he says he's a vet and Greta says, oh, you're a doctor too. And Carson calls him a hamster doctor and sort of mutters to herself about that. Something about that I just thought was so funny. I could see myself saying that in the future. Like, oh, they're a doctor, but a hamster doctor. So what was your favorite scene? It's so hard to narrow down to just one favorite scene, but I loved that scene in the restaurant. Just the acting, the lines, Carson, hamster doctor. It's so funny. Yeah, I thought that was a great scene. And again, I thought Shirley was very funny. Good comedic relief while there's the tension going on and she's oblivious to it. For me, my favorite scene was the nighttime at the practice when Greta and Carson are laying down together and the rest of the team is off elsewhere. I thought it was so beautifully shot. A lot of shows, and I think I've said this before, nowadays they're so dark and the visuals get very muddy. I thought the lighting of this during nighttime was beautiful. The framing was beautiful coming in from the overhead, seeing the two of them looking at each other close together. You could feel that romantic tension. You could tell that they have an interest in each other. And then something else about that segment that I didn't catch until the rewatch was that Joe sees them too. And obviously Joe is feeling a little bit jealous. I mean, what did you think? That was how I read it. I didn't actually view that as jealous. I viewed it as her protecting Greta. Whatever she thought she needed to protect, we know that they've spent years protecting each other from, in essence, being found out for being queer. And so I sensed that she felt that she needed to intercede to protect Greta. And maybe Joe was just thinking, you know what, we're in a public place and they are living in their own world and they're going to get caught. See, I think that Greta has done this before. She and Joe have gone many places and she's had many loves. I kind of felt like maybe Joe thought that something more was going on this time, that it wasn't just the same old fling, that she could see that Greta had this interest. And the jealousy was not a romantic one from Joe, but more Joe being afraid that Greta was going to move on from her. You know, I think this is something that happens when people have been single and then they get into a relationship. And there are some people who drop their friends. And even though we've seen that Greta and Joe have been together for a long time, I felt like maybe she was afraid that she was going to be dropped in favor of this new love when Joe has been with her through thick and thin. I really wanted to know more about Joe. And that's kind of a theme throughout the entire show that she's there, but we don't get a ton of depth. She's more of a supporting character. And I felt like she could have had more time, which is something I want to get into for our final question, which is, What would you change about this episode if there was some element that you were going to get rid of? 
You know, Emma, I'm glad you bring that up. I mentioned not loving the fact that Charlie called and Carson used that as the impetus to go act on her attraction to Greta. And I also mentioned that I thought someone else could have said that. This is an example of, okay, we have all of these other peaches. We have Mabel, we have Shirley. Could Joe inadvertently have said something that inspired Carson to act? Could it have been Mabel? It's so hard when you have all of these characters and we want to know more about them and you're trying to introduce all these different themes. Again, for me, this just would have been a great opportunity to have Carson could have been talking with someone else. Hey, I just got off the phone. Charlie's coming home. And someone says, oh, you should live it up before he gets home or something that would have perhaps fit a little better for why she did what she did. Even at the very end of the episode, when Shirley is being celebrated for bringing it home for everybody, and she makes a comment where she says, it was my body, but it was the team that made me do it. It was the team support, something like that, where someone says something that motivates people. I think even potentially Carson could have made a speech because we have glimmers of Carson saying things that are really rallying the troops. I'm with you. I didn't think that we necessarily needed the Charlie phone call. It was time that could have been spent instead on other characters who we want to get to know, like Joe or Mabel. For me, I would have changed Dove. I mentioned that Dove really irritated me. This episode, I thought he was funny, but I felt like he kind of overstayed his welcome. I was wondering when I initially watched the show, is he going to turn around? Is he going to be a character who is causing conflict, but eventually comes to be a real supporter of the team. But clearly he doesn't. Clearly he doesn't care. And once we saw the seed of that planted in the last episode, I was sort of like, okay, this has been nice. But when he's on screen and when he's doing things, that means we're not seeing other people. And so knowing that, again, in this episode, he continues to just be out for himself. I could have seen him leave earlier Something like, oh, Dove got pulled back to the major leagues or he's coaching now. He's coaching the Yankees now. And then he leaves. And that is the impetus for Carson to take up the leadership role. Or they have something else where someone else takes over as the manager and coach. I was kind of lukewarm on continuing to have him be such a presence in this episode. I was fine with it. He gets the boot soon enough. But I get where you're coming from. This is a story about the ladies. And we definitely could have learned more about ladies. So final thoughts, Emma. I thought this was a really funny episode. I thought it was fun. I thought it moved the story forward. It had great lines between Gretzen, of course, Max and Tony, Lupe and Carson. And I think writing relationships between people continues to be a real strength on the show. And that's something that I'm excited to see as we talk about the future episodes. What about you? Final thoughts? Final thoughts actually go beyond the show. Shantae Adams and Abby Jacobson, Max and Carson, of course, accepted the HRC Visibility Award on behalf of the show. And one of the things that Abby mentioned was really interesting because she talked about, it was very kind of not really veiled, this reference to people at Amazon deciding whether to renew the show or not, and the idea of using metrics as the criteria. And this is something that the queer community has been talking a lot about because shows like The Wild, First Kill, Gentleman Jack have been canceled. 
The question is, well, what is the metric that gets a show renewed? Because a lot of these shows, that includes a league of their own, it includes First Kill, have really great metrics. So what is it that's getting them canceled? I don't have an answer for that. I have some theories and I was just on the Coming Out pod, which is run by Lauren Flans and Nicole Payson, talking about some theories there. But what Abby's response was during her speech was that metrics aren't just how many people watched it or how many likes it got on social media or it's IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes rating. There's also the idea of qualitative impact and how do you qualitatively judge how people were impacted around the world by seeing this representation and this visibility. I know that there's a lot of concern over the fact that no renewal has been announced yet. And honestly, I'm getting concerned too. I do hope this show gets renewed. Obviously, we love this show. But I think it's fair to ask if even this amazing show can't get renewed with fantastic stats, what is the new bar? And what does that mean for the future, not of representation, but the future of storytelling on streaming services? I feel like we could have a whole another episode devoted to queer media and the channels that it goes through, how many things are independently produced versus things from big studios versus streaming and movie releases, etc. That is such a great topic and a Pandora's box because it's really the million dollar question moving forward. Yeah, it's a huge issue and a lot of podcasts are talking about it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I'm definitely starting to get worried. Yeah, I'm sweating it. I'm eager to see and hopeful that it will get renewed. But as time goes forward, it seems uh, just not something that feels great. All right. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. Sorry to end on such a downer note, but if you go to our social media you will see happy things. You will see happy things that Emma keeps uploading. Thank you. I'm glad that you appreciate my artwork. You can find us at P-A-T-O-F podcast on Instagram and on Twitter. You can find me at Plateless Ordinary. I'm Emma and Karen. You can find me at Les Dish. Come talk to us. We're lonely. We're nice people. We don't bite. Sometimes we post pictures of our pets. Yeah. Come ask us a question. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you, and we really appreciate the feedback so far. So catch us next time at Peaches Aren't the Only Fruit.